Welcome to another episode of It's a Long Beach Thing, where we bring on guests and we talk about this beautiful city we call Long Beach. And now, here's your host, motivational coach, Paul Fortune. Welcome to another episode of It's a Long Beach Thing. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and like us on Facebook. We have another great show for you today. We have my friend Mark Morin on the on the on the podcast with us. Mark, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Right on, right on. I it's funny. It's like for the last God, what twenty years. Yeah. I see you walking down Second Street. Pretty much every time I'm on Second Street, you're on Second Street walk, walking your dog, and and you feel uh, like you know every single person on Second Street because you're talking to everybody. I'm, I'm like one of the people that knows a lot of people there. on Second Street. Yeah, Second Street. You know, years ago when it was cranking. I mean, obviously before COVID, um, we're talking like five, six, seven years ago. You, I could walk down that, well, most people who lived here could walk down that street to all the diners that were outside the restaurants, and you would it would take you an hour to get from one to the other because of bumping into friends, dining, bumping into friends, shopping or whatever. And I remember years ago, we first moved here, six nights out of the week, if you walked Second Street, you were bumping shoulders with people. There were so many people on Second Street on a Tuesday night, a Wednesday night. It was amazing. It's quieted down since then. Right on. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll probably definitely uh, go into that, but uh, let's start right here. What is your first officiation or association with this great city of Long Beach? High school, 1980 or 81, came here to do thrift shopping. Every kid go, every high school kid goes to like a thrift shop phase. Uh-huh. And we had kind of gone through all the ones in Orange County because I went to high school in Santa Ana. And so someone mentioned Long Beach. So we came up here to Long Beach and the um, downtown area, was where I think it was Fourth Street. Still today, there's a lot of vintage stores, but more towards downtown. And I remember I even picked up a pair of skis. I picked up a pair of skis and I skied on those things for like three years from a thrift store. But that's why I first really got to know Long Beach. It was ever even had been in the city. Yes, Queen Mary as a kid, a long time ago. But um, and that was my first visit as you know, independent of coming up here for any kind of amusement or what have you, was that thrift shop. Right on. So it was just shopping. But then <laughs> basically it. And then so what was your um, thoughts of, of Long Beach at that time when you're thrift shopping in Long Beach? Did you have any opinion at that point or I mean Long Beach was definitely an urban city, right? I mean those that's a redundant phrase, but it's definitely not like downtown where I grew up, you know, in Laguna Beach. Not like anything in Newport, not like Fashion Island, not like it was an urban environment. And between the International Tower and the varied architecture around, it was, you know, we definitely drove around for a while just because we just was out of our, just out of our zone. And so it was really, we just felt, we just felt like we were really pushing the envelope with the urban vibe from our quiet little, you know, beachfront community living in Battle Laguna. And um, and I remember it just seeming like it was a long way away. It really isn't. Santa Ana is not that far away, but it did seem like a long way away because the drive home seemed 
even longer. Um, but yeah, that was basically, that was basically it. I never, I, that was high school. I didn't revisit Long Beach until I can't even tell you when I think it's, I think it was when I think I, I, I met a, a girl who lived up here and um, it turned out she was actually, she, she then, when I met my wife, they actually knew each other. Um, and so she lived in Long Beach and she happened to vacation in the neighborhood where I grew up, small world. So I remember seeing her down there. And so I came up once or twice then too, but we didn't go out anywhere. We just came up, met her parents and then left to go do something somewhere else, you know, like South Coast Plaza or, I don't know, maybe Balboa, that kind of thing. So what, what brought you here then? I mean, obviously you have no, well, like every, yeah, everything, everything in my just life, like a place, a city that you go thrift stop. Right, right. And it's nothing. So what, what, what made you come here then? Well, like everything else in my, in, in my life, since I met my wife, everything pretty much was my wife's idea. I wish okay. I had an original idea. I really haven't. It's <laughs> my wife went to college here. She came from Palos Verdes and she, we were living in, um, I was living in Huntington Beach. It was halfway between Cal State Long Beach and where I worked down in uh, retail in Fashion Island. It's actually where I met my wife, and we both worked at the same at the same store. And um, so she had said, "Hey, we should maybe think about you're going to Cal State Long Beach. We should think about moving to Long Beach." And I, I kind of, I mean, I, I actually kind of laughed, and I and I said, "You know, honey, I I grew up in a beach town in Long Beach, Janet." <laughs> so she showed me Belmont Shore, which I'd never, I had never gone through Belmont Shore. We just took the freeways to get downtown to do that, you know, prior thrift shopping stuff decades earlier. And I was immediately mesmerized. I thought this is this is fantastic. First of all, Village Vibe on the bay. It is. It's got this quaintness to it. It reminded me. And I know this seems weird. But it reminded me a little bit of Avalon, which has these really tight little houses all crowded together, all different colors. And it, had, it kind of reminded me of that, even though, of course, Avalon is a whole different animal. But every, you know, it's like it was so quaint and local. It just seemed like there wasn't a lot of, you know, Laguna Beach is a out of control tourist town. And you don't, living there, you don't feel like a local. It's so busy all the time, year round. And parking is difficult and getting around is difficult. It's just not user friendly, and yeah, it's beautiful, but even the beach isn't user friendly. Other than Main Beach, there really isn't much to see the beach unless you get on the beach and walk it. But it's not like Long Beach or Huntington Beach, or you can walk along the beach forever. That's not really how Laguna works. And I just like the bay because the bay is such a neat feature, which reminded me of Balboa. It's such a great feature to have a protected water area you can do stuff in, um, you know, sail, paddle, whatever. And then you've got uh, Seal Beach right there if you want to have waves and so forth. I think we moved in like three days later. <laughs> Never left. So, so you were you were hooked. You got the Belmont Shore and you were hooked, and hooked. that was it. Totally hooked. You know, and, and years have gone by. You know, and and I, I I kind of later on figured out what it was about Belmont Shore that really hooked me. And I do uh, I do property inspections, and so I'll tell people moving in the area. I'll tell them, you know, this is like <laughs> this is like cruise ship living. Your house is your cabin. Second Street's the promenade deck, and everything else is an excursion. Whether if you want to do volleyball on the beach, kite surf, be on the beach trail, be in the bay paddling, sailing, you know, up and down Second Street through Naples, whatever, dining, shopping, 
And then it's just so easy to get on a bike and go downtown. And and there's and there, there's all kinds of stuff going on down there, dining and bar, inter, entertainment, jazz, whatever. It, it I feel like I'm on a vacation. It kind of I really don't really I mean, I don't know. I, I just I'm really spoiled. It for those people who have to get in their car and drive everywhere to do everything, to live here is amazing. And it's that's flat. You, you don't see families in Laguna riding bikes, going places. There's no way. It's a death threat. Here you see families on whole families on skateboards and on bikes and on electric scooters, whatever, cruising around because it's way, way more user friendly. So for a while, I know it's not far, but because you're you're going down PCH, that's, you know, with traffic, that's got to be a pain to go from Belmont Shore to Fashion Island every single day to go to work. So that you, that you're right. That um, when I came up here, there was a clothing store right on Second Street called Kennedy's Clothing. And anybody who's been in Long Beach for more than 20 years knows Kennedy's Clothing. They were in Long Beach for 100 years. They were haberdashers and uh, sold hats and men's accessories and got immense clothing. Well, there was a clothing store that uh, had a help wanted sign, and it was very similar to the men's department I worked at at Neiman Marcus and the clothing store I worked at down in Laguna. So Laguna Beach had a guy that owned four retail stores, a traditional men's clothing store, traditional women's clothing store, a main beach surf shop, so bathing suits, towels, chairs, and then a like general gift shop. So I worked in the men's clothing store. And this place reminded me of that. So I went in one day, and that's really what got us up here, was well, I can get a job there and I can finish up school, no longer have to work in Newport, and um, and kind of and go from there. So come to find out, as I'm talking to the manager, hey, tell me about the, how's this place been around? Is the, do the Kennedys own it? Or, no, 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 it's owned by a guy who's been, who's been in um, you know men's clothing for a long time, and he, they, they shared the name. I go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Wait, are you talking about so-and-so? And he goes, well, yeah, I, go, I know him. And and Bill, who owned the store with a with a, another business partner, I had met at the clothing store in Laguna because he was the sales rep for a lot of stuff that we sold. And so I knew this guy. Here he is. We moved to Long Beach. We moved to Belmont Shore. There's a clothing store, an industry I already know, pretty familiar with. And the guy who owns it is a guy I've known for like already probably 15 years. Not on the on his phone number, but I've known this guy. He would recognize me in a crowd. I'd recognize him. So I got that job right away and I worked there for a number of years and it was, that was a really fun job. It was like a gentleman's club. It was great. <laughs> and that's what, that's how I pulled that off. It was, I, so I literally sold, we had two cars. I sold one of them because I just rode a bike to work. I didn't need the second car. The car sat there for so long. I forget we had, where we had parked it. And so it would be street sweeping. And to this day, you know, anybody who lives in an urban environment, you, when you hear that street sweeper, your heart takes off. Did my car, is my car on the right side of the street? And I remember not even remembering where my, where my car was. I, I, I would use it once a week. And so finally I sold it. And so we had one car for like four or five years. Wow. So, awesome. uh, so what school were you going to? You were going to Lummi so State? I went to, okay, so it was kind of a convoluted. I went, when I finished high school, I had no idea what I wanted to study. No idea what I wanted I just had no idea what to do. And so my dad insisted I go to at least community college. So I went there, Saddleback Community College. I was living at home. 
So a lot of the guys that I met there were all into film production. And so that seemed like a kind of a cool, fun thing. And they all transferred up to Cal State Northridge that had a really good documentary film production school. So I transferred to Cal State Northridge along with all my buddies. And we had classes together and we worked on film projects together and student projects together. And But getting used to the Valley after living in coastal California was, that was tough. I had almost no transportation. I had a scooter and I would ride that scooter from Cal State Northridge to the beach through Topanga and just to be near the beach. And that was, a, it was a freeway legal scooter. It was, you know, it was like, like a 90 mile an hour scooter. So that thing, that thing moved. Um, but after three years, I just realized that I, I just was not, this was not working out for me. I just did not enjoy at all living in the Valley. Everything was way too spread out. So I petitioned to finish up at Cal State Long Beach and transfer all those credits to Northridge. So I spent equal time at Northridge and Long Beach. My degree is from Northridge. And, um, and thank God that happened because that brought me back down to Orange County. And that's where I met my wife was getting a job as I finished college at Neiman Marcus. Mm. And I met her because of her friend in college was a high school friend of mine. And a high school friend walked in one day. Oh, you know, my friend works here. And that's how I met my wife. That's awesome. So you got your job because you knew somebody and you, you met your wife because you worked somewhere. <laughs> it's just the whole thing's serendipitous, but I'll yeah, take it. All so you got to do is show up and it just show up. for you. It'll, hopefully it'll work out. Hopefully. So like when you were, were working at Kennedy's and kind of figuring things out, uh, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do or were you? No, just I'm like, still. Okay. So my brother worked for, <laughs> worked for a talent agent up in L.A. So I had my film degree, uh, but I, I, I kind of realized that really, that really wasn't my thing. Yeah, I, for, you know, in order to be a director or a producer, like you really have to passionately like have a story you want to tell, and you and, and a story you want to tell and take months focused on telling it. And I just I realized I just didn't have that, so it makes it hard to connect with other material. It's 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 hard to have that suspension of belief to go with someone else's narrative. And storyline if you yourself don't really have this deep connection to a narrative and um so i, I kind of realized that that'd be something that i'd probably be struggling at because people to which that skill set was intuitive would just steamroll right over me and that would be the end of it so my brother worked for a talent agent up there and they were like a second tier talent agent and i went for lunch one day up there to see him and start talking to some of the agents so they signed me up and so I started doing voiceovers and commercials and it was, it was really, it was kind of hit or miss, you know, it would crank for a while it would slow down and would crank. And, and then, but I, then I realized I'm not, I'm not really acting guy. I'm, I'm like game show host guy, but I'm not acting guy. And, um, it, and, and it just became an issue too, where the drive going up, I didn't want to live up there. There's no way I'm living up in LA. And, um, and when I worked at Kennedy's, Bill was so accommodating that he would allow me to leave work, go to an audition, and come back to work. And so we had one. How long would that take, though? <laughs> that had to take like a few hours, wouldn't it? So here's what I would do. I was a pretty avid cyclist back then. Like I was doing, I, mean, I was riding like like thirteen to fifteen thousand miles a year. Like I was into it. So I get on my bike, and my wife in her car at work in downtown Long Beach would have all my clothes. 
So I get to downtown Long Beach on my bike in about <clears throat> pretty quick. I mean, probably in about 18 minutes, I get there. I get in her car, go right to her car, put my bike in there, go to the audition. I would always get there and I get to go in the front of the line. I knew a lot of the audition places and a lot of times they would call me directly. So when I show up, they put me right in line. I would do my thing sometimes three or four times. They were big. They were, they were really trying to promote me and they would make sure the advertiser would see three or four versions of me with three or four other people, part of the same scene. So, and I get a lot of callbacks from that and, and, and jobs from that. So that was a, that was really fortunate. I had that happen. Um, then I would get on in the car, drive back to my wife's job, drop the car off and ride the bike back. And I think my record was, I did the whole thing in under two hours one day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Biked, drove, auditioned, drove back, biked back, got to work two hours. How long was your, how long was your shift at Kennedy's? Bell to bell. You know, like I'd work from nine, from nine or 10 in the morning until they would close at seven or eight. Oh, okay. So you just yeah. took a long lunch basically. Yeah, I could die to a long lunch. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was so vigorous. It was the whole thing. I mean, I look back down and thinking, God, I must have been. But you know, you get a good gig, and the pay was ten, twelve thousand, whatever. Hey, that's I'll take it. But Especially you know, there, when was that? The nineties. Yeah, yeah, and but it became clear that there's a lot of people. You know, when you show up to an audition and everybody looks like you, and I mean. Paul, you don't realize this, but there's like 50 doppelgangers of you up in Hollywood looking for work. And there's 50 of, you know, there's me and of my wife. And, you know, they'll, they'd call in elite models. Like they'd do a, a car commercial and they need like, uh, they want to audition 100 beautiful girls. And they're all 10s and 11s. And, and, and I know, I know what good looking is. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating. These girls were gobsmackingly, disorientingly incredible specimens and you, you you had to look away because some of them were just so striking but when you start seeing that rotation there's so many faces there's so many people look like you you begin to realize you got to live up here and do this every day all day to get somewhere you just can't come up you know one day three days a week for a 15 minute audition and leave you got to be up there and i i doubt one i just just I, no i'm done well, how long did you give it a go before you said? A couple hey, years. A couple really? years doing that. And it was, and I had some good runs. It just, it just wasn't, um, the people are just, that industry fosters a mindset that I didn't want my, I didn't want my headspace to be, to be in my headspace. You know, the, there's a lot of desperation. There's a lot of panic. There's eternal hope. You know, that, that and, and I just thought, you know, this is too, I mean, I'm married. I, you know, at some point we're out of family. I, I got to start, I got to start chugging forward here. And I just didn't want to spend my, that energy pursuing something where, unless I was a writer, and I could do stand up and I had really funny material and stuff they can copyright. You're kind of, you're just, you're just another guy doing commercials. Yeah. So when you had that realization that, hey, maybe maybe I don't want to be an actor anymore, uh, where did you turn? So I was I was kind of I was kind of lost there for a bit because my skill set was basically people skills, sales, 
And um, I could certainly do what's required of, you know, commercial acting, voiceover. I could do that, no problem. But I didn't really have like a legitimate, you know, professional skill set. So while we were living here, I got involved with cycling. Um, I, every morning, there were a couple of realtors that were riding their bikes. And they seemed to have a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> and one of them said, hey, we have a guy we use for property inspections. And they're looking to train somebody who's not from the construction industry. They want someone that's got the soft skills, people skills. And um, so they introduced me to this, this company. And I spent a day out in the field uh, with this inspection company, with the owner. And at the end of the day, I said, wait, wait, let me, let me get this straight if I understand what you do for a living. You show up, you complain, you fix nothing, and, and you're paid for that. So, oh, yeah. That's, oh, sign me up. <laughs> oh, great complainer. So the learning curve was massive, just massive. And I think I went on three inspections a day with their top guys for over two months, seven days a week. So the market was cranking 23 years ago, seven days a week. And I was just barely scratching the surface on, you know, sensorial acuity, situational awareness, people's skills, uh, crawling under, getting used to crawling under houses, having a system to get dressed for that. But what was empowering about it was people really needed to know this stuff. And it was a great skill set to have. And it takes probably a couple of years. It takes about 1,200 inspections to sort of really know what you're doing. I, you know, not, not to be a danger to yourself, probably takes five years to really, really get it figured out. You need to get a few attorney's letters and stuff like that before you begin to really understand how serious it could be if you mess up. And that's how, um, that was my next segue. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. I just thought it was it was fun to have my workspace change every two or three hours. I'd be at this place in the morning and this place in the afternoon and so forth. Um, I liked editing. I film production. I always liked editing. So I liked generating the photos and generating the report and trying to edit it down and tighten it up and make it concise. Like I enjoyed all that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of things, a lot of grab bag of skills that were a part of it. There's a sense of adventure to it, certainly. You know, crawl spaces, you got to have a sense of adventure. And, um, and I also realized that some of the elements of property inspection were a barrier for market entry. A lot of people just refuse to do the kind of things you have to do to produce a great report and a decent, meaningful inspection. And I like the fact that there was, there was kind of a wall, a barrier that most people wouldn't cross over to do it. And it kind of kept us in this small group of people that would do it. Well, for the first five years, you said that's when you got your feet wet. So were you nervous going out on your on your own doing these inspections? So when I worked for the company, no, because okay. they assumed a liability. And there was a lot of liability. We'd have meetings every month. We'd go down all the complaints that clients had had about our inspections. And, you know, I remember I missed a section of piping at a house and it cost us $2,500 to fix it. That was a complete leaking mess. But when I was in the crawl space, um, that, I'm trying to think, that piping was dry, corroded, and next to brand new piping. And so I made the assumption that the new piping replaced the old. 
Well, come to find out that piping went to like a filtration system and the filter wasn't there. So when the new people installed the filter outside the house, the connecting the plumbing to it in the crawl space was that old and immediately started leaking. And so then you start thinking, okay, well, so I really have to know in a crawl space, you really have to understand that your field of view is very limited. Unless you have a powerful flashlight, colors are limited, distance is kind of exaggerated, but you really have to have spatial awareness of where things were in the house and what you see in the crawl space relative to those things in the house and kind of reverse engineer it to make sure you're, you're covering everything. So, you know, a simple thing would be like, okay, the bathroom has an exhaust fan. So when you go in the attic, are you remembering to find that duct? Or are you hoping you see the fan housing in the attic to prompt you then to think about where's the duct? You should be thinking where's the duct regardless if there's a visual cue because you're gonna forget it's 45 minutes later from the inside of the house to doing the attic. You're gonna forget about that fan. And if you're looking for a visual cue, there's a fan in the attic like the box. And then you see there's no duct attached to it. Okay, that's obvious but where there's insulation over the box and you don't realize the insulation goes up a little bit and goes back down, but you're not thinking because you don't see the actual box. You forget about the fan. So you forget about the duct. So you just have to be like, that's the thing that gets you in trouble is just not connecting the dots. And, but then, so you, how long were you with the company before you went seven out? Seven years. I was there seven years, 4,200 inspections, something like that. Like in my, my thing, but 550 inspections for one year. Back then, there was no photos involved, and we printed on site. You could really move quickly. Inspections were not as complicated as they are today. So today, you can only do two inspections a day, not three, and you got to do photos. And so it's way more involved today. So, so since I was there for seven years, and then when the 2008, the market tanked, and I realized how I was getting paid, I wouldn't survive. I'd have to go out on my own and... I really felt terrible about leaving this great working group. We got along so well. And I solicited the owner, hey, if I'm compensated a bit more, it's not worth my while to go out alone. And um, so he had been doing this for a long time. And he just felt it was just better to be part ways. And so I worked, I said, hey, I'll train somebody, whatever. And so I worked there for a few more weeks and I brought in my computer, but he was kind of hit by a landslide because the other inspectors had the same thought that I did, which is this market of doom in 2008 is going to cut our, is going to cut our volume down to nothing. And it's almost like we couldn't afford to pay our employer. That's weird to me, as weird as that sounds. We had built our own business at that point. I mean, my business model, every other inspector's business model was based on their cult of personality. And we had all built large books of business based on our interaction with our clients, those agents, their friends. And it was it was just devastating to see the market go as bad as it did. And it, I mean, it was so bad. I remember going to house, all these houses had been ripped apart by really frustrated, pissed off owners. So they would take the toilets, they would take the doors, they would take the appliance, they would take everything. Water would be turned off, gas shut off. And you would show up these houses and they're like exotic forts. There was like, they were uninhabitable. And you're just writing down endless defects with the property. A lot of it abuse, a lot of it because they couldn't afford to keep it up anyway. So they've been kind of maintenance abandoned. Then they were abused upon move out. And there was just so much stuff we had to write. And I remember coming home and telling my wife, I, 
I'm kind of done sitting here just all day long into all these beat up properties, just writing horror novels uh, and trying to make sure I don't get sued because now I work for myself and I just, I want to cover every base. And so for about a year, it was just, it was just filthy. I remember that whole era, just the houses were filthy. Everything was filthy. And then the first market to come back was Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach, 2009, late 2009, started to, started to make a rebound. And uh, and then it, it started to really crank. And thank God I had all that South Bay business that a lot of tech, you know, tech campuses up there, a lot of finance guys up there, women, uh, a lot of athletes. There's a lot of, it's just a lot going on in Manhattan Beach. And, and that's the first market that turned around and then things started rolling after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and now we're looking at an, another uh, thing in the in, in the industry now with the higher interest rates, mm -hmm. coupled by the low inventory. Um, you right. have it. You have the pulse of the city of Long Beach. Where, where do you see things shaking out in the next couple of years? The so Long Beach is still a value, definitely a value. It's the it's the it's the most affordable place to live on the water. And that's because we have no tight action. You know, we have, um, we're, we're a dynamic city with real urban issues. That's a turnoff to people that want to live in, um, you know, kind of more seaside village vibe. San Pedro sort of has the same dynamic, uh, you know, demographic as well. And, um, but, Long Beach, because of its freeway access, is is way more use. It's a way more user friendly town, and there's so many diverse neighborhoods here. There's so many options, so many places to, from the ranchos to Naples to Bixby. To, I mean, there's so many enclaves that are have really started to define themselves in the last ten years, and are very desirable. And you see a lot of South Bay people moving down here. People that live in Gardena. Torrance, you know, Torrance has gotten really expensive. Their schools have skyrocketed in um, in, the, in their education value. And so you have a lot of families moving there for the schools and driving up prices. And so you have people in the South Bay that were moving to Gardena, that were moving to Lawndale, even Linwood. Uh, they're coming down to Long Beach because now they see the value. So because of that, I think Long Beach will... Um, is still going to be attractive. Sellers are still kind of holding out on their pricing, even though the rates are up. Rates are not historically horrible. They're just seem like a lot compared to where they've been, but you can go back 30 years and see how crazy rates were in the eighties and late seventies. And, you know, we're, we're nowhere near that stuff. Um, and buyers are a little resistant about sellers not coming down in prices. They don't, buyers don't want to kind of come up. So a lot of stuff we're seeing right now are estate sales. You know, you're, you're seeing a families settling estates of where their loved ones have passed and they've got to sell this property. Long time owner occupier, um, kind of a time capsule and below market value. So I've done a lot of those in the last three months. You said uh, undervalue. Why would they be undervalued? Couldn't, oh, because they have no upgrades. They have old school kitchens and bathrooms. A single person was living there. They have old school windows. You know, they have multiple layers of roof on them. So if you want to be roofy, you got to tear it off. 
Um, you know, just it, it was fine for the single elderly occupant who was living there, but a family of four coming in that they're looking at it like there, there's we got to put some money in this property. Mm. And so they're they're a bit below market. But a lot of people really don't have a tolerance to do improvements. They really want to move into something that's nearly turnkey. And the ultimate definition of that is the condominium buyer. Most condominium buyers aren't, they're not hands-on folks. They're either very busy and they want to check in and check out of their property, almost like a hotel. And they're not ones to do a lot of personal upgrades to a property. So they really want that thing to be turnkey. People who buy homes, they're willing to take a project on, but only so much. The investor doesn't care. The investor will take on an absolute, you know, houses half, half burned to the ground. They, don't, they have no fear. But that those are my clients. Hmm. So you're saying that though, even though that we're seeing a difference in the interest rates and such, and but you're saying the demand and, and Long Beach will still be there just because of you know the the things you were saying with the freeway. I think so. I think so. And there's also nothing too. There's a huge upgrade in lifestyle when you go from a condo or an apartment to a house. It's huge. You go from a bunch of neighbors to a couple of neighbors. You go from laundry being downstairs to laundry being in your, I know condos have laundry in their units as well, but many don't. You go from one parking space, maybe a lot of condos, no parking, to two parking spaces. So there's, there's a huge lifestyle upgrade when you move to a house. And contrary to uh, sort of, um, you know, chanting from, you know, city planners and community planners that high density, that there's, you know, high density is very efficient. New York is the, one of the most efficient cities in the world. And this is a big study done on this, but big study done by sort of environmentalists on what was the utopian low energy per person um, city that you could, not city, but housing and community you could have. And, and New York City was number one. Per person, it's cheaper to do everything in heat, cool, transport, feed, whatever, it's cheaper in New York City than it is out in the boondocks somewhere in an urban sprawl, which is why you see people now pushing for ADUs and all that stuff, because high density has efficiencies built into it. This is true in manufacturing, and it's the same, you know, it's a metric, it's a metric everyone understands. But there is a huge lifestyle upgrade when you can walk full perimeter around your property, you can wall off your backyard, you can have your private events in your backyard, and and that attraction, eventually, someone will ease up on a seller not coming down too much or the interest rates going up a bit to have that life, that huge lifestyle upgrade. I'm glad that you brought up the high density. And there's a question I ask a lot of the real estate professionals. And I want to ask you this question. Um, obviously, you know, let's, you know, we're talking about Long Beach. So Long Beach is pretty much all developed. There's not too, too many places where you can build new in Long Beach. All, all the land's already been, been developed and built out. Um, now with uh, people shopping online on Amazon and other online services, you see a lot of the commercial uh, buildings having trouble finding uh, leases because uh, other people are looking at, plus with COVID, other people are looking at it going, well, I don't need to uh, rent a space I can cut cost and everybody can work from home. So you're seeing it harder and harder to fill leases for commercial property. What would your what would your thoughts be if they rezone some of these areas from commercial to residential? 
That's interesting. Um, so they have done right mixed use. So an investor I know has a number of mixed use buildings in Long Beach. So it's your business downstairs and then it's your residence upstairs. And they're older buildings and they got rezoned to, to do that. Um, the, the only issue with this high density thing, yes, uh, I guess if you build it, they'll come. I mean, it's a, it's a great line in the movie. I don't know. I don't really, I don't really have no, I, I'd love to see the metrics on how well that plans out. If you build it, they will come. Um, it, if they want it, like if whatever you build is desirable, yeah, they'll, they'll show up. So on those commercial, if you're not, if you don't have parking and a lot of them, you know, ADUs, they don't have to make a parking allowance. If those commercial areas don't really allow a lot of parking, it's all reliant on public transportation. You know, public transportation in California is a serious topic uh, with really a glaring answer that everyone wants to walk around. And bo bottom line is a car gives you ultimate liberty and freedom to go where you want, when you want, how you want. And once you've had that, giving it up to be on public transportation schedule and you know linking different public transportation options to go from A to, to B to C to D to finally get to your destination, for most people becomes intolerable. And if you're in a tight community where everything you need is a few blocks away, you solve a lot of your problem. So... Yeah, if you're able, if you swap all the commercial to high density and everyone's still buying stuff online and getting things shipped to them, then where do they go for their shopping? Where do they go for, well, as long as I guess that's nearby, they're probably served. But if they need to get a vehicle, you know, most people, bottom line, are live remotely from work. You know, they don't, most people don't live down the street from where they work. And so you're at that point, Unless the whole structure is designed for these people, not just to be able to live, but to have a lifestyle in these landlocked areas where everything they need is a few blocks away. Yeah, it would it would work. But it, it's they, they just finished that new tower right at Ocean and Alamitos. Beautiful building. I, I think it's. I think it's I think it's the best looking building in Long Beach. I'm a big fan of Long Beach. I'm a huge fan of Long Beach architecture. So many amazing houses. What about so the one catty corner from that with the gargoyle building? I love that building. No, right, right. It, it, um, but you drive by at night. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of lights on, and yeah. they want you know that top penthouse unit. That's fifteen. I heard eighteen thousand a month. I heard that from early on from somebody involved with the project. So it's not a number I'm making up. It's a number that I heard, maybe totally changed. Is someone going to pay that much money for a penthouse suite in downtown Long Beach? Now, I can tell you that uh, I, I just don't know. You know, half of Manhattan, uh, New York, half of Manhattan's high-end housing in their skyscrapers are vacant. Those are investments. They're not, people don't live there. Right. And they lure all these retailers down the lobby area to serve this full 100 percent full building. That's at 50 percent and can't sustain these retailers and they end up closing up shop. And would that happen here? No, no one's going to buy. No one's going to invest in a Long Beach townhouse for a million dollars for the long term investment. 
whole world doesn't want to be in the cosmopolitan city of Long Beach. I mean, I, it, it's just not, we're not, we're not, we're nowhere near that strata. So I don't know, I don't know how this stuff pans out. You can hope for the best, but you know, hope is, uh, it's not, there's no horsepower to that. That's just. So that's if just you were the city of Long Beach, What's that? Uh, what things would you implement to improve the city? Well, I don't, I'm not, friends of mine are heavily involved with the city. They're, they're heavily involved with city council, the city planning, uh, private projects, municipal projects. And, um, and there's a lot on that plate. There's a lot going on. Uh, I don't know what metrics actually work. The, the waterfront uh, mid-rises there, those 30-story buildings, I've been, in, I've been in all of them doing inspections there for those, for those home buyers. Um, fantastic views, easy access to Pine Avenue and downtown for stuff. A lot of them get on the freeway and go right up to where they work and they entertain and eat lunch where they work, wherever that is, Culver City, downtown LA, whatever. Um, and they're big fans of that Ocean Boulevard lifestyle. Um, I just don't know if you just keep building it, will more people come? I think eventually, yeah, if you want to live somewhere in this room for you, then you're going to go with this room. So Long Beach has had, and I'm sure a lot of you have had, tremendous large-scale um, development failures, massive failures. Uh, the, the mall that was downtown, driving out the car dealerships, now the mall was ripped down, the open-air mall. You know, they closed the Walmart, I think it was there, because of theft was so high. Um, you know, Rainbow Harbor area has become like an outlet mall with the theaters, but, you know, that was supposed to, you know, the, the, but then you have the aquarium, which is amazing. And Pine Avenue has great stuff, and you've got great rest, legacy restaurants in that area that anybody who lives here fully knows and appreciates. Um, the bike trail is fantastic. The bike trail is fantastic. The area with that in, inside the break wall is the largest, I think it's the largest enclosed water area for recreational use um, in, I think, the U.S. I remember reading, it was published somewhere for Long Beach. It's the largest area for water, you know, for boating and stuff that was protected from open ocean that was man-made, not, not a natural bay. And there's a lot going on in that thing. If, unless you live down there and watch it, maybe don't realize but there's a lot going on with that. So there's a lot of things that, that, that have gone right. Um, but I, I think it's a difficult, it's difficult to master plan this kind of stuff. <clears throat> San Diego is commonly referred to, is commonly referenced as a success story that was Long Beach-like and they turned it into this international city. And I hear that reference to San Diego all the time. So there's, I just don't know how accurate that, that metric is. They still have the Navy base, right? So that's a big, that's a, there's a lot of activity with that. There's a lot of beautiful neighborhoods. They have a lot of high-end neighborhoods, right? Waterfront areas where you have houses that are, you know, $20 million on cliffs. So one of those cliffs just fell into the water, but the houses are nearby there. <clears throat> um, 
you know, Long Beach, you, know, you go to Naples Island and the most expensive house there at 10,000 square feet, which I've inspected, um, I think it's $10 million, 10 or 12. You go to Laguna Beach, you'll find a 10,000 square foot house on the sand. It's $40 million. You go to the South Bay, it's 20 million. So you go to Newport Harbor and it's twice the price for the same square footage. So there's still, there's still something in the, there's still something in the perception of Long Beach that, that it has to get past before people see it as like a destination. Hmm. In my humble opinion. Wow. Okay. Well, there's lots of digest there. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's just my perspective. I don't, you know, a lot of people are, are far more optimists. I think there's, there's, there's obviously greater opportunity in optimism <laughs> than there yeah. is in pessimism. Um, but I, I think that it's easy. It's easy for a municipality to go with the idea that the, the, the current you know, the administration of that time could possibly be the linchpin that the, the change the trajectory of the town and put it into a whole different strata that maybe it was more like San Diego and now it became a tourist, like a tourist destination. Because Long Beach really isn't a tourist destination. Well, do you think, I don't know if that's the goal. Do you, I mean, I don't know if I would, you know, I'm a resident of Long Beach and I don't know if I would want that to be the absolute goal for Long Beach to be a tourist uh, area. Cause uh, you know, cause there's a lot of things that could go wrong with that. You mean you bring in, you know, we already have a homeless problem um, that's been growing each year. And I think right. that if you make it a tourist area, I think that that increases, you look at, um, Venice, which I don't know if it's still a tourist area, but at one time it was big time. Oh, yeah, it's busy. Watch was filmed there. Everything was filmed there, and it was huge. And now, now, you, you, now, people don't want to go there because it's overrun by homeless. And you know, obviously, we don't want that to be the same thing in in the Long Beach area. I think Long Beach has pursued this tourism idea for years. Um, you know, it was obviously the Queen Mary. It was a Spruce Goose. Spruce Goose, I think, was really relevant. Because aerospace, I mean, aerospace is what built Lawndale, Linwood, and Gardena, and Downey. And aerospace built Southern California. And the Spruce Goose was, a, I think, an amazing, it was an amazing attraction to have at Long Beach. The Queen Mary, unfortunately, has, has that's been a boondoggle. And, and people go on cruises anyway now. It's not like a cruise ship is something that you wouldn't see. It's so, um, but tourism people coming in for just a day and leaving you know that's I, I so here's an example some of the cruise ships that would go into san pedro would bus the passengers to belmont shore to shop and that was a lot of people on the weekend that would be walking around buying stuff well that contract or that went away and it made a noticeable difference on foot traffic at belmont shore just one small thing but just to have a lot of people strolling around you're going to get you're, you're going to get revenue, and if you're just sticking with, you know the, just the population, and what their basic needs are, basic services. When you start to calculate food needs, energy needs per person, just to live day to day, you end up with a pretty finite, predictable, and fixed revenue. Mm -hmm. The only way to really change that is convention business, get people in for that, um, and then. Tourism, 
amazing museums, uh, an amazing waterfront experience. I, I don't know if we have that. And, and when you're on the water, a lot of people associate your, I think, your ability to maximize that waterfront experience as almost that's just like that's a revenue maker but it just it's just not something that we've figured out here in long beach i think the homeless situation is obviously a complete complete reflection on the absolute ridiculous leadership that this city has been under for a long time there's no ways about it you know, in coastal cities, city managers pretty much run the CEO of the city, and most mayors are kind of figureheads. They don't really have a lot of say on policy. They do on some stuff, but it's the city manager and the numbers and the people in the legal department that tell you what you can and can't do, what, what's allowed. And the a lot of cities address the homeless population by saying, we're going to set up a homeless advocacy group. It's going to have 100 employees. We're going to pay them a salary. And, and we'll let them address and figure out what to do with the money. And this is a big problem in Portland and other cities, and none of the money really goes to the homeless. It, it, it's basically a jobs, it's a jobs pitch. We're gonna employ 100 people, isn't that great? And there's, there's so many complicated issues with the homeless. You know, it's, you, you hear figures all the time of what the percentage are addiction, what the percentage are mental illness, how many are mentally handicapped? Just mentally handicapped. They're not mentally ill and they're not, they're not addicted. They, these people would be great and what a sense of self-worth if they had a place they could go work and make something per hour take care of themselves. And there's a fraction of them that float in and out of homelessness that are they're functional individuals that have bad luck. Yeah. And, and they kind of float in and flow out of the system and, and they exceed you know the safety nets that are out there. But the vast majority of these people, I'm on Second Street every night hanging out with uh, friends catching up on the day and we see where we know all the homeless people and you know last night this one gal sat stood in the street for half an hour screaming on top of her lungs it hurt my throat and when i say screaming i mean like like you would have thought she was on fire and being eaten by rats at the same time it was the most excruciating scream cops never came no you know it, you can't tell her to be quiet she just goes off again and that's not unusual. There's some outrageous behavior. The homeless just walking slowly down the middle of the street. Cars coming to a stop, let them walk by. The city apparently thinks that's an okay way for someone to spend their life. You know, clearly it's not. It's it's, uh, it's sad. So I don't know what the solution is. I mean, listen, half the federal government's budget are entitlements. That's half. It's half the budget, of which they go over every year a trillion dollars. Right? So now we've got $30 trillion that we're upside down. What has that done for the majority of communities? You know, the largest minority recipients of that money haven't much changed their education, haven't much changed their job skills, haven't much changed their dependency on government, and not much has changed. Billions and billions. You can't change that. What, you think you're going to solve homelessness by building houses because they're unhoused? There's a different way you got to wrap our brain around it. I, I have a lot of compassion for these people. Going from Laguna Beach, we had a huge, arty kind of homeless population that was you know, wanted to come down and, and just be in this like free love 60s environment. I moved there in the 70s. My parents did. And there was people uh, camping in the canyon, campsites in the canyon. Laguna Canyon was, it was kind of cool. That's how they lived, you know. You'd see them hanging out on the beach with their, you know, and, and, and they were very friendly and really functioning people, but they just enjoyed this vagabond lifestyle. But that's not what we have anymore. And I just don't know 
just don't know what the solution is. It's it's really overwhelming. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had some some because a lot of people that I bring on they bring up the homelessness uh, issue here, but you know I always like to hear you know solutions, uh, common sense solutions that we can do as as citizens of this great city of Long Beach uh, to help that 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 problem because you know you know a lot of us live here, a lot of us want to live here, you know, for a long long time. And we care about our city and we want our city to be safe as possible. So, you know, yeah. is there anything that we can do? And I want those people safe. I want those people safe. There's a gal on Second Street who is just, I mean, I look at her and I wonder, just, you're, just your heart goes out to them. What happened to their family? Why is no one looking out for them? And she is completely unpredictable and erratic. There is really almost, unless a cop approaches her, right? So they have enough sense to know how to behave when the cops show up. That's kind of the first clue that they can rein it in. And so one day I noticed she had this eye injury and she was kind of out of control that day. The cops came and the cops had shared that she had gouged out her own eye. Like that's what you're dealing with in some cases. Where do you even start with that? And, you know, common sense, yes, there's common sense solutions, but common sense doesn't mean it makes sense to them. It just makes sense to the person that has the idea and a consensus of people. But, you know, a consensus isn't a truth test. It's just a consensus. And a lot of people think that if you get enough people to ring about stuff, then it must be okay. You know, I guess if you had 51% of the voters were all male and voters, uh, those all male voters voted that women shouldn't work, I guess... I guess that'd be okay because the consensus was women shouldn't work, uh, but life doesn't work that way. Consensus is not a truth test, and and it's it's uh, it's it could be horribly horribly wrong. And I think that a lot of the common sense ideas and what the and the consensus uh, is more like follow the money. I don't think it's really a solution for the homeless. It's just follow the money, and and there's a lot of a lot of it out there. You know, I do I think it's a good idea. For these people who are pushing shopping carts around, you know, full of stuff that means something to them, but it's really just ends up being discarded somewhere. Because you see the trash discarded here and there. You know, I understand they want to hold on to something. I get that. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe it's, hey, listen, you, you can't be leaving your stuff here. You have to always be on the move. And maybe that would prevent kind of have them to travel a little bit lighter and, and and maybe start thinking about anchoring themselves at a facility that allows them to have some privacy or some sense of belonging or something. I just, I, I don't know. A lot of them, they fight amongst each other. You don't find a lot of homeless people, even in camps. You, some of them do have like a village vibe, but a lot of them, it's pretty, it's rough. Tough one. It's a tough question. It's yeah. no yeah. answer. Well, we it's went, we went pretty one. deep on that. Hmm? We went pretty deep on that subject. Let's let's lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what you've been in Long Beach for quite a long time. Thirty-four, right? no, yeah, 34 you're, years. You're yeah, like the mayor of Belmont Shore. So, where is the best places to eat in the city? Well, there's so many great places to. 
places to eat, and I haven't eaten at them all, but probably the benchmark restaurants are going to be because they're always busy. So Nick's on second is always busy. 555 downtown is always busy. Nico's in Naples is always busy. Michael's is always busy in Naples. Um, there's so many smaller restaurants, Mexican, Thai food all around town. On Broadway, there's a Thai restaurant um, downtown. Manal? Hmm? Was it called Manal? Manal is on Broadway by Miramar. Yeah. Excellent food. There's another one on Broadway and uh, like Linden. And one of the most beautiful brick structures in Long Beach. It's seen in a lot of TV commercials and print ads. If you're if you're aware of it, you, you would recognize it. Um, it. So there's great food everywhere. Even the sushi, little sushi place in the corner of Broadway and Alamitos. There's a there's a Thai food place there, and then there's a little, a little hole in the wall, single freestanding structure sushi place on its own little parking lot next to Clancy's. They have good sushi too. There, it's just there's a lot. There's there's so many places to go, and then you go up to Bixby area. Great restaurants up there. There's a lot. It you could spend a month and visit each one of these places before I think you start repeating. There's just that many great places to eat and of different ethnicities, food too. Yeah. Well, name a few of your favorites. Because I live in Belmont Shore, and because I like. <laughs> Because I like walking to make it easy because I, I kind of want to stay on the cruise ship. Um, Belmont Shore pretty much has everything that I'm satisfied with from Sushi on Fire to Nick's to uh, several taco places. You know, even Riley's. Riley's has a beef stroganoff every now and again. That's amazing. Um, there is Roe. Roe has the most amazing, their corner place has the most amazing seared ahi burrito it's i would drive a half hour for that for them i would drive a half hour to eat that food that like no question it's so good and um even angelo's for sandwiches it's fantastic little gazelle i mean there's just a lot of places on second street that the new restaurant opened um Yosiesu, which is on nieto and then across from that the one what used to be um the taco place that was under construction for like five years and now it's open. Now it's, now it's a, it's a nice restaurant. Um, yeah, I forget the, the name. name. It's a high end Mexican restaurant. High end Mexican. Yeah. And great ambiance. We went there. I had, I had a fish, I had a fish entree that was, I mean, I, I was just like shaking my head. Like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> Everyone had a great meal, even their enchiladas, whatever, just basic enchilada, but it was so special and so good. So we had a great meal, but great service. It felt special. It, it just felt like, I can't believe this is down the street from where I live. See, that's the thing that's really fun is it, the proximity. The proximity really kicks up the fun factor because you feel so blessed and so lucky that it's just down the street. And so I really enjoy spending money in my neighborhood and encourage everyone to spend money in their neighborhood and visit those restaurants. I know when things get tight, our inclination is not to spend, but but if we're in a community, and this is a community, you're it, it's not good for your community if you can't, if you're not patronizing those businesses. It's all a part of the it's all a part of like the the capitalist social contract. You know, spend spend where you live, 
and enjoy the re, you know the resources that you have. And it's it's important. I mean, I want people. That's why I want people to hire me for. I want them to know, hey, that's the guy. That's the guy. I need that guy. And we and you know you got to you got to pay to play, and you know you got to participate. And I I just think that it's really important, and I and I like the proximity of this of this neighborhood to participate in all these options. And there's so many neighborhoods like this all throughout. I mean, you go to Atlantic, you know, in the 3600 or whatever, 40, 40th Street up there, you know, Atlantic, Long Beach Boulevard, in the Virginia Country Club, Bixby area, great, great options up there. And people use those resources. That's the best thing for a city is use with local, have fun with it. It's all part of the joy of being able to, I mean, growing up, we had to get in the car and drive everywhere. What a pleasure just to walk. It's, I'm spoiled. I'm totally spoiled. Wow. Well, we covered a lot about Long Beach. Is there anything lasting words that you want to uh, talk about with the, with this great city of Long Beach? Well, I certainly, I think we're, we're, I mean, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I think, I think the economy is definitely going to be struggling here for a little bit. And I just don't know what this means in the big picture. I just hope we don't see a lot of closed downs. I hope people participate, sustain those businesses. If, you know, if, be their advocate. If you enjoy what they're offering, then be a part of it. Be a part of that community by participating and and enjoying what they have to offer. And uh, you know, holding yourself up in a in your place and and you know, trying to live as frugally as possible. I totally I totally get that. I'm not I'm not slamming that. But people work hard, and they have a lot of their families who are working in those restaurants and. They're doing what they can to make ends meet. And if they're putting out great stuff, my thing is the best way to make this city great is advocate and participate at the local level as much as you can with goods and services that are probably what attract you to that neighborhood anyway. Mark, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. I know <laughs> probably tomorrow I'll see you on Second Street. So. Yeah, I hope so. Paul, thanks for uh, having me on. It was a lot of fun. No problem. Till next time. It's been a Long Beach thing. Thank you for tuning into It's a Long Beach thing. Please tune in next time for another great episode. Thank you and have a good rest of your day.